Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. The first print run of Karen McNeil's The Wine Bible ran to just 700 books, but to date it's sold more than a million copies. To celebrate the publication of the magisterial third edition this week, I caught up with Karen to talk about her remarkable backstory as a runaway street kid, the importance of humour in wine writing, the difference between a good and great bottle, and how, as a generalist, she keeps up with the ever-expanding world of wine. Hi, Karen. How are you? Great, Tim. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Tell me where you are. I know you're about to go on a big tour. Yes, I'm in the uh, amazing heartland of America in Nebraska, um, in a hotel room, actually, by myself, but soon to be out signing some new wine Bibles. Fantastic. And, and who are you signing them for? It's quite a big event, isn't it? Yes, actually, uh, it's a confab of 400 top antique dealers who every year congregate here, perhaps in Omaha, perhaps because it's really the center of America. Right, fantastic. I mean, you just published or just about to publish the third edition of this remarkable magnum opus, The Wine Bible. I think I'm right in saying it's now sold over a million copies, is that right, worldwide with all the translations and everything? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's hard to believe in a way, because when I wrote the first edition, the publisher said to me that they were going to do a print run of 700 copies. And I said, don't do it. I only have 25 friends, <laughs> you know. Uh, so to have sold a million copies is, um, I don't know, makes me, uh, it just makes me so grateful. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder how you're feeling, you know, elated, exhausted, relieved, very proud. How are you feeling as the books come out? Yeah, a little of all of those, um, because it is, you know, being a writer yourself, um, how intensely, uh, on the one hand, solitary it is, but also how you hold yourself to an incredibly high standard, hopefully. And then when something comes out, you're you, I don't know, it's it's an amazing feeling. Because you all along, it was it was so tough. And there were so many days when you thought this will never see the light of day. And now mm. here it is. Well, if it means anything, I think it's the best you've done yet. So and that's a high standard to, to hit, you know, to supersede, isn't it? Thank you. Yes. But, you know, uh, I think one thing that we we don't recognize, perhaps as readers, is that writers should be getting better. I mean, people always ask me, you know, what's new in the book? And of course, there are new things. But hopefully what changed the most is that I got better. I got better as a writer. I got better as a communicator. I got better at explaining, you know, organic chemistry in a a simple way. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think it I, I hope it's the best one. Well, that's good to know that we get better with age. I mean, it's one of the few conversations, <laughs> isn't it? 
Listen, right. I mean, I want to talk to you obviously about the book in more detail, but a little bit, if I may, just a bit about your backstory, you know, your childhood and adolescence in, in Boston. You know, you had polio as a kid for six years. You were bedridden. You ran away from home when you were 14, put yourself through high school in Nevada. I just wonder, you know, how has that affected your, your outlook on life? It must think you can achieve anything if you get through that. <laughs> well, it does. It does make you trust yourself to get out of scams, I suppose. But um no, you know, um, I, yes, I had a, a very rough uh, childhood and, and did leave home at uh, 14, which was very hard uh, to do to make my way um, and eventually moved to New York, um, which was even harder. Um, but I think what it gave me was a sense that if I just kept my head down, worked hard and kept going... I could make it. I could, I could, what, and whatever, I don't know what even make it meant to me mm. as a kid. It, I, I guess it meant, made it, made it out of my terrible childhood and terrible yeah. family and mm. poverty and all those things. Mm. But anyway, um, you know, when I think about tackling a big subject like the wines of the world, I, I go at it in with a great degree of determination. Hmm. Not knowing if it's going to really work, but being determined. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you decided to become a writer, I think in your 20s, and you knew, again, you know, part of this amazing backstory, you drove to New York with a few dollars in your pocket. How hard was it to, to get started for you? And what was your first article about? Yeah, it was very hard to get started because, um, you know, that was in the late 1970s. And um, it was the great heyday in New York of newspapers and magazines. Um, but it was akin to, I don't know, trying to get, trying to break into Hollywood or something. Mm. I've never taken a writing class. I had no degree in journalism. I, I was, you know, a street kid in effect. And, uh, you know, I was writing um, after working two jobs and, and then apprenticing myself to a third for, for no money. I was writing in the wee hours of the night, sending my articles out, which were on poetry, politics, women's issues, all kinds of things. And I collected 324 rejection slips, which I thumbtacked to the wall of my fifth floor walk-up in a neighborhood in New York called Hell's Kitchen. Uh, and uh, every day I looked at those 324 rejection slips. And finally... <laughs> Uh, undeterred. Well, I don't know. I guess it was still pretty demoralizing, but I kept at it. And my first article sold to the Village Voice for $30. Um, no idea what that is in pounds, but it's not much, maybe 12 pounds or something <laughs> yeah. uh, back then. And uh, I immediately went out to the hot nightclub in New York where I'd never been, but I'd heard about, sat at the bar and drank a whole bottle of Pomeray champagne <laughs> which was the only champagne they had on the list. So, um, mind you, I was on food stamps at the time uh, because that's how poor I was. Yeah. Um, and this article was not on wine, of course. It was on, of all things, butter. In those days, you could still, in New York, buy these beautiful artisanal butters from uh, rural farms in upstate New York. Mm. So it was a taste comparison of the best artisanal butters. That was my start. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, if you still got the rejection letters. 
you know I don't, and I I so wish I had them. Um, yes, boy, do I wish I had them. But you know, from as you know too, um, once you funny the funny thing is about about writing, I suppose, is that once you write one thing that's published, it is an enormous springboard. Especially the Village Voice was a great springboard, and so. Within uh, a few years, I was writing about food for the New York Times, mm. for all of the magazines in New York. You know, it was, the, it was in fact, uh, a, just a, a bountiful time for magazines. But of course, what I really wanted to write about was wine. Ah, okay. So when did the switch happen? Was there well, a switch? Yes, there was a switch because, um, you know, I should backtrack here for just a minute by saying that uh, when I when I left home, uh, uh, the you know you can't leave home in the United States when you're 14. They'll mm. put you in a foster home or something. Mm. But I was not or something. That is what mm. what will happen. I was a really good student, and that saved me because the judge in my case let me live by myself because I had a straight A average mm. and because I could prove I could support myself. So at 15, by the time I was 15, I sort of discovered that wine exists. And every night doing my homework, I had a glass of wine. Now, mind you, this was, my specialties were Bulgarian reds, which cost 89 cents. And uh, I eventually moved up to a dollar a bottle Liebfromilch, which I thought was just the most magnificent wine I'd ever, ever experienced. So now flash forward 10 years, I'm in New York desperate to, to write about wine. But with the exception of that Pomeray, I'd never had a great wine, not once. And you can't just, in the 1970s, you didn't just learn about wine. Mm. In the United States, there was no way to learn about mm. wine. There were no schools. There were uh, no, no retailers were allowed to do tastings. About the only thing you could do is read or try to have wealthy friends mm. whose parents had uh, cellars. Mm. I didn't have any wealthy friends whose parents had wine <laughs> cellars. So um, anyway, in those days, to finish off this story, um, there were about five men who controlled all mm. wine writing in the United States. Mm. And all of the producers from around the world would fly in to do tastings just for these five men, you know, the Chianti Classico producers came in on Monday and the Port guys came in on Tuesday and the Rioja guys came in mm. on Friday mm. and no one else was invited except for these about five men. One of them knew, um, I, I knew one of them and he knew how desperately I wanted to learn about wine. And so he, he asked the others if I could come and taste with them. And their answer was, Yes, I could on one condition, and that was that I not talk. So I didn't talk. For, for how long? How six, many, years. How many? six years. Six years. <laughs> I was desperate. Six years sitting there, listening yeah. to them. Uh, but, you know, I didn't want to talk because I wanted to give my opinion. Yeah. I really didn't. I, di I considered myself as having no opinion because mm. I didn't know enough yet to have an mm. opinion. Mm. But I wanted to ask them questions. Hmm. And they did not want to be pestered by this puppy asking them a million questions. But the story comes hmm. full circle because all these years later, 
I remembered so keenly how difficult it was to understand certain ideas in wine. And that became the basis for the Wine Bible, yeah. which, by the way, outsold all of their books combined. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that underdog uh, kind of line. No, exactly. No, it's, I mean, it's your tenacity again, isn't it? But, but I just wonder how you describe yourself now, because you're obviously a very good writer. You're a brilliant communicator. You know, I've heard you uh, speak in public and you've done your telly shows and everything. You're an educator. Um, you wear all these hats successfully uh, and at the same time sometimes. Um, how do you see yourself now? You know, I think if you um, have your own business, as I always have, um, gone are the days, long gone are the days in the U.S. where you can just be a writer. Mm -hmm. I would, there are days in which I would love to just, you know, hole up in my mm -hmm. office and clack away, mm -hmm. not at a typewriter any longer, mm -hmm. at a computer, uh, because I love that. But the world has forced all of us into a larger communications business. And what I realized was after um, getting fairly good at writing was that the other side of the coin of writing is teaching and communicating. Mm -hmm. And that has been uh, great for me too, because it's, you know, there's, you have to be really extroverted mm -hmm. to stand up in front of 400 mm -hmm. antique dealers yeah. or in Nebraska. <laughs> yes, or whatever, and talk about wine. And then you can kind of go home and, and be your introverted self again and go back to writing. I mean, you, you do this very well. And, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to pull off that you demystify wine, but you don't simplify. And that's a real gift. I mean, I think it's almost as if you educate people without them realising they're being educated. I mean, do you have an ideal reader in mind when you sit down to write the book? Or, you know, do you think, OK, I'm thinking about, you know, a person who lives in, I don't know, Nebraska or California or New York or Boston or whatever? Is he male? Is she female? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I have I have a friend, <laughs> an imaginary friend, um, and she's about forty. I'm not kidding. She's yeah. about forty. I picture this woman all the time. Um, she's a very smart woman, about forty. Loves wine, but doesn't know a lot about it. And I tell her the story of whatever chapter I'm working on, mm. Chianti Classico, you know, mm. uh, Mendoza, mm. what, whatever. Um, and, you know, all these years after writing the first, second, and now third editions um, of the Wine Bible, what the letters I get from people all, almost always say, it sounds like you're talking yeah. to me. Yeah. I love that because mm. you're not, you know, you're not just dumping on me all the stuff mm. you happen to know about mm. wine. I feel like you're talking to me. Mm. And and that's very intentional because mm. I I don't know, I I wanted I wanted the book to be a a conversation in yeah. a sense. It, it's, I think it's very hard to pull off that conversational voice. I mean people think it's easy, but it's it's actually surprisingly hard to write as if you're talking. You know, it, not many people can do it that well. I mean I I, I mean I agree with what your those readers have said. It's it's a lovely read because it's an engaging read and it kind of brings you in and you think, oh, I didn't know that. That's fun. And it's got lots of kind of little, well, we'll talk about the jokes in a minute. But anyway, I mean, but how did you come up with the idea? I mean, and did you realise when you first came up that it's going to take you a decade to do it? You know, and then you ended up yeah. with, what was it, 700 copies of the print run? Yeah, in the beginning, yeah. yes. Well, you know, it's a funny story because I had written this piece uh, uh, for the New York Times magazine 
on New England sandwiches, lobster rolls and mm. things like that. Mm. And Peter Workman, who uh, was a very famous publisher, the late Peter Workman in New York, um, on Monday morning, I was sitting in my at my desk and the phone rang and the person said, hello, this is Peter Workman. Do you want to have lunch? I mean, I nearly fell off my chair because I knew who Peter Workman was, but I certainly didn't know him. <laughs> and so, you know, what can you say? I said, okay. And he said, well, meet me here, here, here in, so -so, in Soho and I'll see you at noon. So I sit down in the restaurant and he says, so I read your piece in the New York Times yesterday. I like the way you write. What book have you always wanted to write? And I said, this isn't happening to me. You've got to be kidding. You're offering to me to do a book? And he said, yeah, what do you want to write? And I said, uh, uh, a book on wine? And he said, uh, we've never published a book on wine. They were very famous in those days for their cookbooks. He said, we've never published a book on wine, but mm, okay, wine it is. Can you have it ready in a, in a year? I said, absolutely. <laughs> 10 years later. So, yeah. So I go, I walk out with this, with a contract to write uh, a book on, unnamed at this point on wine. So every year for the next 10 years, Peter Workman would invite me out to some fancy place in New York for dinner. And he would say, just promise me you're not like sitting around in your pajamas. And I, I would say, Peter, I'm not, I'm not, I promise. I am working on this thing but it's bigger than you and I envisioned. So when I finally had it all together that, that morning, I take my 5,000 page manuscript, holding it like a baby. I bring it to him. I'm sitting across his desk, nervous as, as anything, as he sits there silently, kind of reading various pages. And he looks at me after about 20 minutes and says, it's fantastic, and we're calling it the Wine Bible. Oh, okay. I said, absolutely not. <laughs> said, Can you imagine what they'll do to, do to me in the Bible Belt? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I said, not only, I have Jewish friends, you know, and besides which, um, that's like too big of a statement. Yeah. I, I, I remember I'm still an unknown wine writer at this yeah. point. I said, that's, that's just too big of a statement. And he said, well, you obviously didn't read the fine print of your contract because the title of a book is considered part of its marketing. And you, my dear, are a subject expert, but you're not a marketing expert. So you don't get a vote in the title of the book. And I didn't know that. So he said, I trusted you all those 10 years. Now you've got to trust me. We're calling it the Wine Bible. And he was right. And he was right. Yeah. I mean, tell us a bit about the structure, because it's changed over the years with the three editions, but it's always been a, a compendium, you know, lots of little short articles that complement the main chapters or the, or the narrative, if you like. I mean, how do you decide what to include and what to want to exclude and where do you put all these different bits? Well, you know, that is the, the hard intellectual part of a book this big is, you know, if Brunello di Montalcino is, I don't know, four manuscript pages, should all of New York State be three yeah. or seven, yeah. right? It's not, it's not the, 
size of the place, mm. it's its importance in the world of wine. Mm. So that's hard to figure out. Mm. But also, what the way I think about all the side boxes is, when I first started, when I this was you know when I was a dirt poor <laughs> on food stamps mm. person, mm. reading everything I could about wine. Mm. It was so stripped down. Mm. It was just wine fact after wine mm. fact after wine fact. And I, I felt like, God, my head is killing me. I, uh, you know, this is, this is not good writing mm. because it's too, um, I don't know, it's too gray and mm. too linear. Mm. I needed something that really helped me understand the culture of a place. Mm. So I began writing these side boxes mm. that I found just little tidbits mm. of culture, mm. art, history, food, things that I found fascinating that I thought readers might too. And I remember- They once, do. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the second edition, yeah. I remember when I was researching that, I was in Argentina mm. and you uh, write about South America so often, right? Mm. So I'm in Argentina and my editor calls me and she said, where are you? I said, I'm, I'm in Argentina. She said, what are you doing? I said, well, right now I'm about to take a tango lesson. And she said, Karen, it's a book on wine. And I said, I don't think you can understand Argentine Malbec until you understand the tango. Yeah. Yeah. And damn it, I put a box yeah. in the book and it's great. on the tango and the history of the tango. And I really believe yeah. that, Tim. Yeah, and and I think things like, you know, the history of the word booze or you know, the history of the Chinese in the Napa Valley. I mean, I, I think all those little things, they're little tidbits. Um, they they kind of bring the text alive. I'm not saying the text isn't alive anyway, but they make it more alive, really. Um, I, I want to ask you, because I mean, since you did the first edition in, in 2001, it came out, you know, the wine world has expanded exponentially. You know, I mean, I have trouble keeping up with it and the places I'm a specialist in. Um, how do you keep abreast of the whole world? I mean, is it getting harder to write the book, a global book, a Bible, is it, in a sense? It really is. I think um, there are very few generalists mm. left. Um, it's kind of like medicine, right? Every doctor wants to be a specialist. Mm. And every wine writer logically uh, moves toward specialty mm. um, because the world of wine is so vast. And of course, with Asia now coming online, it's it just magnified the wine world, you know, uh, just astronomically. But I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of proud about being able to be uh, a generalist. You could argue, you know, five miles wide and two inches deep. But, um, but I, I do my best to, um, to really keep as, as current and serious in every region as I, as I can. Mm. COVID, it was hard during yeah. because you can't travel. Mm. I couldn't travel anyway. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a place for generalists mm. like me, though. Well, having said that, you know, there are some regions and countries that you know better than others. You, you live in the Napa Valley or California. I've had the benefit of your immense knowledge of, of the state. I mean, how do you get to cover those other places in, sim in similar depth? Do you have people who tip you off? Do you have researchers? Do you have correspondents who are kind of writing bits? Or is it all you? Is every bit written by you? Um, for this third edition, I did have researchers yeah. um, who loved certain areas and so would be um, keen to 
uh, keep studying and research them left, right, and sideways. Um, none of the researchers write anything, though. I, I write everything. And, um, you know, many of these researchers were sort of even beginning as researchers. They were uh, often WSET uh, candidates who were, who for their own purposes wanted to study a given area. So nonetheless, I benefited from their, um, from their help quite a bit. Um, but everything else is me. I try to travel a lot. Um, when I go to certain places, if I have a journalist friend who I know is a specialist in that area, I'll often say to them, in fact, uh, I haven't been to Rioja in a while, and I plan on I'll help calling you. you and saying, <laughs> you could call me when you want. <laughs> yes, what should I not miss, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder how much of the, of the whole book is new. I mean, you know, obviously the structure was there, but it's pretty different, isn't it, in terms of what's where. And you've added some new countries, including Great Britain. English wines are in there and Croatia and Israel. Um, anything else that we should know about the expanded coverage? You know, the, um, well, the, the wine word dictionary is, is just incredible. And the grape dictionary is also incredible. Which is the about only, third of the book, really. Isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's the only dictionary that has wine words in not only French, German, Spanish, and Italian, but also Portuguese, Hungarian. I mean, because you kind of have to know the Greek. You have to know those words now. Um, but I love the chapter um, called Wine in the Ancient World. Mm. This was a... I was going to ask you about brand, that. Good. <laughs> yeah. It was a brand new chapter. So hard to write because when you start researching that and start reading what anthropologists uh, and archaeologists write, first of all, you can't figure out the timing. Mm. Some people are saying 5,000 BC. Yeah. Some people are saying 9,000 years ago. Some people are saying in the Iron Age, you're like, wait, wait, I, I have to actually draw this out for myself, a big, you know, like time chart <laughs> to figure that out. And then, Tim, I realized, oh, no, this is going to this is going to drive me crazy. Periods like the Neolithic period, which was so important for wine. They're different in different places. Oh, no. The Neolithic period is different in China than it is in Georgia. Mm and Azerbaijan and Iran. I'm like, oh, no, you're kidding. Because this is going to be really hard to figure out now. So um, in any case, I just loved uh, writing that chapter because it was hard to do. Mm. And I guess when a chapter is really hard to do, you know, it's like a hard vintage for a yeah. winemaker. It becomes your, your little pet favorite because... You realize how hard you had to work yeah. to get it to work. I, I mean, on this podcast, I interviewed Edward Slingerland, who wrote a book, Drunk. I don't know if you've read that book, which is very interesting. Yes. And his theory was that that we started with beer, like with with a weak form of beer, and that wine maybe grew out of that. Um, uh, you know, do we know what we were drinking first and when? Is there is there evidence? I like I like his book, mm. and I use it in my class that I teach at Stanford, mm. but. Um, uh, I would disagree with that. The earliest evidence of wine thus far, and truly wine, is uh, is in China. It's uh, and it is nine thousand years ago in Henan Province, a place called Jiahu, J 
I-A-H-U, which interestingly enough may also be where the first musical instruments wow. were invented. Coincidentally? I don't know. It was a Wine and very song. it was a very advanced society. Mm. Um, they had jewelry, uh, musical instruments, mm. and wine mm. made from grapes. Tell me a little bit about the the expanded um, ninety page section at the beginning, mastering wine, which, which I like very much, and it feels very contemporary. You know, it's got stuff on on natural wine, on old vines, which is becoming more important in the world of wine. Smoke taint, you know, um, sadly all too contemporary. Climate change, ditto. Was that fun to write an update? You know, it feels quite journalistic that you were actually engaged, a bit like the, the ancient world chapter, that you were really having to engage with all those different subjects. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you stand in front of an audience after you give a talk and you say, all right, any questions anybody have, have about wine? I mean, anything. It doesn't have to be about the wines that we've just tasted. And you know what people will ask, right? They'll say, you know, oh, someone gave me this bottle of wine for my birthday. When should I drink it? You know, I have these kinds of glasses, but I always put them in the attic and never use them. Should I, what kind of glasses should I buy? Um, you know, uh, I, I hate broccoli. Uh, does that mean I'm a super taster? I mean, people have a thousand practical questions. And I thought, I want to start out the book with the most basic question of all, which is, how do you tell if a wine is great? Yeah. And then from there, talk about all the contemporary issues of wine that are based on the logical questions that people always have. Mm. You know, how could I tell if a wine has smoke tain? Well, here's, here is what smoke tain is, and here's how you would tell. Um, so it is fun. I wrote Mastering Wine, though it appears in the book first. I wrote it last. Uh, okay. Yeah. In order to be very uh, contemporary yeah. in the in the section on taste and smell research. Yeah, no, that was very interesting. Uh, I mean, there were loads of things looking, at, um, particularly how fast our sense of taste is. I didn't know that. You know, it's yeah. our, it's our fastest sense in a way, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yes, your taste buds turn out to be really fast, even when you're older. So you may yeah. be running, you know, around the track a lot more slowly, but yeah. your taste buds are still your fastest sense. And is that evolutionary? It probably is, isn't it? Because it's, it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a form of defense, isn't it? Totally. Mm. Uh, yes. The, the evolution did not want you to swallow poison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, this opening chapter and you talk about how do you discuss wine and write about wine. And you make this distinction between subjective assessment and objective assessment. And you say that the two can coexist in their appreciation of wine. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you mean? Yeah, you know, you've probably heard this too. People will be uh, out, you'll be out with a bunch of people and people will say, someone will say something like, oh, but you know, this is a good wine because any wine is good if you like it, right? Mm -hmm. Just if you like it. I know it, what I like. Good. You know, do you say that in America? People say that in England a lot. I know what I like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know what I like. And if I like it, it's good. And I, you know, I'm such a school marm in a way. I I would say, well, I'm, I'm happy that you're happy about it, but that doesn't make it, the fact that you like it does not make it good. Mm -hmm. It makes it a wine that you like, mm -hmm. and that's totally wonderful. But if it was true that there were no standards of quality, mm -hmm. nothing that we could say mm -hmm. uh, pointed to a wine being great versus good, then there couldn't possibly be wine criticism because 
criticism and even writing is dependent on the idea, as it is in art, mm -hmm. architecture, movies, music, that there are certain principles that over time uh, lead one to uh, cherish a certain work mm -hmm. more than others. Mm -hmm. So you may love to read trashy novels, mm -hmm. but that does not make trashy novels Charles Dickens, you know? Um, there, there are standards that cause something to be appreciated over, over time for its brilliance and its beauty and its excellence. So trying to figure that out yeah. in wine was fun and hard. I mean, so are you saying that a, that a great wine it has to have, or, or part of that objectivity really, is a track record? Yes, I think so. And an objectivity may be uh, not the, exactly the right word, even though it is the word that I used, because we all are coming at wine from our own uh, perceptive field, you know, our own brains. But, um, but what I was trying to say there is that there are hallmarks of greatness that are generally agreed upon by most people who spend their lives yeah. in wine. Yeah. And here are those hallmarks, yeah. and here are here's why they're important. Mm. And that's very different than liking a wine in a little cafe because you were with the person that you love on a rainy day and you sat there all afternoon and drank the bottle of Burgundy. Yeah, but then going from good to great, is that partly an emotional response or are you going to apply the same criteria there? Um. Good wine, I think, is uh, is largely more subjective. And good wine, by the way, is really important. I'm not suggesting in that opening chapter that all wine has to be great. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think it's important to drink a lot of good wine so that when you hit a great wine, you're like swept off your feet and you know oh, this is one rung more up the ladder. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. We mentioned this earlier. I mean, I, I like the fact that the book is full of puns and good jokes. You know, I loved your line, you know, each spring there's a lot of sex in the vineyards. You can imagine somebody reading it and saying, what, where, you know, how can I get there? But, you know, and I love your description of Italian labels, you know, good luck and acronym <laughs> hell. Do you think, do you think that humour helps to make wine less intimidating? Is it part of that demystifying and, and gentle education, if we could call it that, that you're, that you're involved with? Yeah, I mean, you know, if we, uh, uh, if you and I and a few colleagues were sitting around in a house or a restaurant drinking wine, what would it be full of? It would be full of laughter, mm. right? We'd be having a good time. Yeah. And so why wine writing uh, is, you know, it's like this, I don't know, gray echo chamber of bad writing. It makes no sense because wine itself is fun and uplifting and interesting and mm. curious mm. and intellectual, but there's also very funny aspects to it. Um, so I suppose in the book, I was trying to um, give the book the same feeling that we would have if we were sitting around a kitchen table drinking some good or even great wine yeah it, there would be some jokes told yeah and, and I, I mean I agree with you to me wine bores and pompous people who want to tell you about verticals of Latash they had last week or who post only post pictures of famous bottles of wine on Instagram or whatever 
Um, they're anathema to me, and I don't think they understand wine. I mean, so that sounds very pompous of me in turn to say it, but it's it, it's almost like they don't get it. As you said, it's it 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 makes you merry. It's 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 a social drink, right? Yes, I mean the key was um, inserting just enough, or or allowing really mm. just enough humor in the book, mm. but not taking away from uh, the serious scholarship at the same time. But I think it's by occasionally being light that you allow people to really digest all the. Mm. The, the more scholastic aspect. I'm sure that's true. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book about other food and drinks. I mean, it shows your background beginning with that article about all the, the wonderful butters. You know, there's grappa, there's truffles, there's coffee, there's tapas. I mean, part of the same question, really. Do you think we wine writers are too wine-focused in a way that we don't see the bigger picture, not just the humour, but the fact that, hey, there's a whole world of aroma and flavour out there? I completely agree with that. In fact... Um, one of the reasons the wine Bible is the way that it is, uh, is because when I started, so many wine books had had all of the surrounding materials stripped out of them. They were just about wine. But in life, wine isn't like that. Wine exists within a culture, with food, with, uh, uh, with art, with history, with religion. And so I was determined to sort of put all that stuff back in. Yeah. To a wine book, not take it out. That's what makes wine come alive and feel very special to readers. And did the public publisher was happy with that? Was it me in the first edition? I, I, have, I haven't still got my first edition. I've got my second and my third is uh, on my laptop. So, Yeah. Um, yes, the publisher was happy because the publisher was also that kind of a person who loved wine, but didn't know much about it. Um, and you know, so I don't know, some quirky little box on their, you know, <laughs> 20 sheep to every winemaker in New Zealand. I don't know. You know, it's it's lines like that. You're reading along. You're like, OK, I get New Zealand now. There are, those guys are outnumbered by the sheep. That's the yeah, and almost that's 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 worth 20 tasting notes on Sauvignon Blanc, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I. I don't know. I became in the third edition. I really let loose. Though. Okay, it I, feels that way a bit. It feels as if you're thinking, "Hey, man, I'm going to go for it, right?" <laughs> yeah. More jokes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's I your... feel like if any, if it's yeah. if it's I don't know if it's funny and culturally relevant, it, it, has it goes to be in. in the... Right. I like it. Now, what's your next project? I shouldn't be asking you this because you only just you just released the last one, um, the current one. You probably need a rest. But anything else you, you you've got on the on the on the stocks yeah you know i've been toying for a while uh with the idea of writing a, a non-wine book um possibly a memoir um possibly a novel uh so you know i'm the kind of person who if you even if as as exhausted as i may have been from the wine bible if you plunked me down in i don't know fiji tomorrow I'd, I'd rest for about a week, and then pretty soon I would take my notebook out and I'd be interviewing the Fijians about the history of coconuts in Fiji. <laughs> or bananas or something, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
don't know if there are any coconuts. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know if there are any bananas either. We've probably just said something <laughs> terrible and insulted anybody Fijian listening. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, all you Fijians. Yeah, that, that's your But I think a memoir would be amazing. I mean, you know, just what what you've lived through. I mean, such as some of the stories you've shared today have been remarkable and told with with humour and wit. Really, do the memoir. All right, that's one vote for memoir. Okay. But yeah, ask 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 the guys tonight. What were they again? Antique dealers. Ask the antique dealers what they think. Do a show of hands. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much. Listen, best of luck. Uh, not that you need it with the third edition. You're already over a million copies sold. So let's hope you get to two million with this third edition. It's a really brilliant book. Buy it, everybody. Um, it's out now, and uh, see you very soon. I hope in California, in London, or somewhere around the world, close to a glass of wine. See you soon. Thanks, Tim. I hope so, too. You can see why Karen's book has been such a hit with readers. It's like she's having a conversation with you. Do get hold of the new edition. It's the best yet. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Portuguese winemaking superstar Dirk Nieport from the Douro Valley. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.